Father, we thank you so very much for all the celebration that's taken place in this glorious building. Just a common gem. Lord, looks so vacant, so bare early Sunday morning. Then the chairs are out and the band sets up and guitars are strummed and vocalists open their mouths and Lord, we're caught up immediately in the glory of God. All of a sudden we begin to taste heaven and our eyes begin to see more than the material world. We begin to see infinite love and infinite hope. We thank you for 15 years that you have enabled us to both be a witness and to serve, to give our lives for the one we are witnessing about. Now, Father, I pray for every person here. Thank you that you brought many. But I pray, Lord, for their sorrows, and I pray for their guilt, and I pray for the enormous stress they feel at work and at home. Lord, the grieving, the despair at times. And I just pray today that they would see with the eyes of their heart the resurrected Christ who loves them and has invaded the sorrows of this earth as a promise that he's going to take them out and going to take them to a place of unending joy. Thank you, Jesus, that you came, wrapped yourself in the skin of humanity, that we one day would be wrapped in glory. We owe you everything. Happy Easter, Lord Jesus Christ, God our Father and Holy Spirit. Amen. The greatest thing I can do for you this Easter is not to tell you the truths of the gospel. The greatest thing I can do this Easter for you is to pray for you so that you would see what you claim to see, yet barely see at all. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus, he lovingly explained to them they didn't have a knowing problem. They had a seeing problem. And therefore, he prayed for them that they would see with their heart things that they already knew for years in their head. His prayer goes like this. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And then he defines what better looks like. It's not more knowing, it's more seeing. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So when Paul says I want you to have a spirit of wisdom. I don't think he's asking for anything new like a new spiritual gift. I think he's asking, I want you to have a spiritual posturing, a spiritual longing that you would be able to see things that God has always wanted to reveal to you. I want you to have a humble dependency 
and a longing to say, God, I know I don't see these things. This is why all of this comes in the context of a prayer, because only through the spiritual power of God are you going to see things with the eyes of your heart that are now stuck in the eyes of your head. And therefore, that's when a person is prayerless in their life. They are admitting, I don't want to see any more of God. That's what you say when you don't pray. Because the person who prays is crying out, I don't see this stuff that everybody in church sees, or I think they see. I don't see it. God, help me to see it. Jesus often dealt with people who couldn't see Though seeing, they do not see. This is how he described the crowds. How do you see and not see? Well, Jesus must be, as Paul is saying here, he must be saying there are two types of eyes. Two types of seeing. You have eyes in your head, and then you have eyes in your heart. We love the eyes of our head. To see springtime and to see our daughters dressed up in prom dresses. We love the eyes of our head that see all the colors of, of spring and trees and new growth. But Paul prays, I need you to want to see things with your heart that cannot be seen with your head. Think about just the example of Judas Iscariot who plays a main role in obviously the Easter story having betrayed Christ to death. Judas Iscariot was a chosen apostle. For three years, he knew Christ and never saw him. For three years, this man was endowed with apostolic power, performed miracles, raised the dead. I mean, it's not like I mean, the disciples were totally shocked when they found out that he was the betrayer. I mean, it's not like the disciples for three years had gone on mission trips and said, why does Jesus, Judas never do miracles on mission trips? They never saw anything that would have clued them off because he had power. He knew Jesus and never saw Jesus. So my prayer for you at Easter is that you would see him rather than just know a bunch of stuff about him. You can know everything about the hope of heaven. You can know it. You can know the story of Jesus, blood pouring out from his veins, body laid in a tomb on a rock slab, an angel rolls the tomb away, and Jesus is alive. You can know all that and live a hopeless life. Addicted to all manifestations of sin. If I told you today, well, I told you, I read these verses to you today. You heard them. Riches, hope, riches, power. All of these are yours. And I bet in the reading of that, maybe it didn't do much for you, but if you went home today and on your door was taped an envelope with a check from Publishers Clearinghouse for $5 million that would elicit more emotional outbursts than the thrill of reading these verses.
Because you know all of these things, all of these 15 years we've been together, and you've not seen him. This is why Paul prays that you would see with your, the heart eyes what you know with the eyes of your head. So he prays for three things he wants them to see. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you may know hope, riches, and power. And how wonderful it is that the first thing he says is, I want you, I'm praying that you would know the hope of being called by God. Many people in our culture do not believe that God calls anybody. They don't believe there's a God who there is to would make that call. They believe that many in our culture are increasingly moving toward a belief that matter is eternal. It's always existed. And it's mindless. And it's irrational and impersonal. That there is no, but the Bible says matter has not always existed. That there is a God outside of this world working inside this world because he loves this world. If you don't believe that, you're hopeless. The hope is that God is calling you Come into my kingdom and sit down at my table and eat with me forever. I'm calling you to that. Think about what it means to be called by God to enter his city, walk into his castle, and sit with him at his table. You arrive at the door, and he takes off your dirty clothes, washes them in the blood of Christ, and sows the power of the Holy Spirit in every thread of your clothing and then gives it back to you and then on the day that you die, clothes you with supernatural glory forever. That's what it means to be called by God. I think Paul knew that in Romans chapter 5. What, what, what Paul says is hope. What's he hoping in? And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. This is the hope that sustains us on our journey. You can, you can put up with a bad seat on an airplane when you know that that airplane is going home. Paul is praying for the church to know the hope of Christ so that you would... You just wouldn't see all the sorrows and the toil of this world. Your eyes are looking at sorrow. Your eyes are looking at toil. Listen, if you do not believe that every action on earth is connected to a great future, you will be hopeless. If you believe that life is a bunch of random, meaningless tasks interrupted by a bunch of random, meaningless sorrows, you will be hopeless. But if you believe that they are connected to one who is seated on his throne and who rides on the clouds and is returning to prepare an eternal home for you, you will have hope. You know, it's wonderful when we think about heaven. No pain, no disease, no curse. Gardens, waterfalls, trees, maybe golf courses. 
I don't know what, what you think about. That would be fun. And all those things would be, would be probably are. But if that's all we did for 10 million years, I think it would get boring. But it's not. It's, it's our experiencing the ever-increasing experience of the glory of God is what heaven is all about. Uh, nobody says this and helps you think about it better than C.S. Lewis when he says that experiencing God's glory is our deepest longing. It's what we're all craving. Think about when you see a bright orange sunset. You just don't want it to end. You get camera, you start yelling, screaming, having car wrecks, so you can take a picture of it. And you just, you just want to be invited into it. You want it to just never end, and you want to, it's, 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 it's fun to see it, but it's not enough to see it. You want more of just seeing the sunset. This is what Lewis says in his timeless essay, The Weight of Glory. We do not want merely to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, and to become part of it. And this is the wonderful hint of the New Testament on every page, that God's glory one day will wrap you in a, a way that's more fulfilling than any ray of sunshine or summer breeze has ever touched your skin. You'll be wrapped forever in the glory of God. So the reward you gain from all your believing and all your serving and all your suffering is not some medal or crown you wear forever. But for everything you've ever done in the name of Christ, the reward is to see and behold and touch and taste and swim in the glory of God. That's your hope. Paul prays for them a second request. I pray that you will know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So when you come to this verse, you, you, I did, you, you probably do too, you say, okay, whose inheritance? Is this mine? Is it his inheritance? It looks like it's his. So is it an inheritance for me or is it an inheritance for God? And the answer is yes. It could mean either. It's okay to interpret either because both are taught. I think it means both. Scenario number one, it means God inherits us. Scenario number two, we inherit God. What's it talking about? His inheritance in his people. Let's talk first about God inheriting us. Because he says he is going to do that thing, has done that thing. Malachi 3 on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my inheritance, my treasured possession. So if you ask the question today, what did Jesus Christ win at Calvary? I mean, we say he won, right? He wins. Everybody says, what's the book of Revelation? He wins. Is that the best you could do? So he what did he win? What did Jesus win? For his leaving heaven, taking off glory, putting on human skin, becoming 
poor, teaching to those who rejected, rejected him, living a life of total obedience, resisting every millisecond of his life and thought and action and behavior, all disobedience, going to the cross to endure the worst of all deaths. What did he win for that? Us! Jesus won us at Calvary. And it seems to me like he got a bad deal. He won us so that we could win him. He inherited us that we might inherit him is the message of Calvary. Are you valuable to God? You better believe you're valuable. He values your joy. That's why he came. Because he values your joy. He values you greatly, not because we're wonderful people. <laughs> he values us greatly, not because we're wonderful people, but because he's a wonderful God who so values your joy that he came and sacrificed everything in order that you might inherit his joy by him inheriting you. Yesterday at the Easter egg hunt, Kim did such a good job of teaching the story at a children's level they could understand, but like it's, it's the gospel, so it's, it's never too low. It's, it's never too high, never too low. Just tell me the story. So she told the story that Jesus came from heaven to teach people who rejected his teaching and nailed him on a cross where he died for all of our sins to be placed on his body and the cross. And then he rose from the dead to prove that the cross worked to clean us. And then she had, I love this, she had given all the children band-aids. And she told them, I want you to go take all the hurts in your life. And I want you to place them on the cross. Does Jesus Christ value your joy? He came and gave his entire life so that we could put all the band-aids of our 58 years of living on the cross, all the pain that's come from my sinning, all the unnecessary pain from the guilt of my impure thinking, impure acting, impure talking, all of the hurt, all of the band-aids of wrongs done against me, all of the band-aids of disease and things that break my heart. Jesus died on the cross. He said, I am coming here to die on the cross so that I may inherit you, so that you may inherit me and all of the joy of glory. Are you valuable to Christ? He considers you his inheritance so that you might inherit him. So when Paul speaks of the riches of God's inheritance, he's basically saying God possesses us so that we can possess God. God possesses us fully so that in heaven we might ever increasingly possess him. It's impossible to ever fully increase infinity, uh, I mean, to uh, embrace infinity. So God fully 
inherits us so that we might ever increasingly inherit him and his joy. I remember when my daughter Anna was 14, we uh, went to India, Lisa and Anna and I did for a mission trip and it was um, fruitful and we were grateful. But after two weeks, she was ready to go and she could not wait to get back to the youth group because they were headed to Carowinds. She said, Dad, we got to get back to Carowinds. But she didn't know that because Delta, one of their routes flying through Europe, goes through Chapel Airport in Amsterdam, that we weren't going straight back. We were going to Amsterdam. And when she found out that we had two more days not coming home and she was going to miss Carowinds, she was so sad. Because Carowinds had a new roller coaster. And when we stepped foot in the downtown heart of Amsterdam and saw those cobblestone bridges and those 1,200 canals and all of that ship traffic on the I River and our floor on the 17th, or the 17th floor of that hotel overlooking all the beauty of that harbor. Oh, she was so glad that I possessed her <laughs> so that she could possess this. God inherits you so that you can inherit Him. Third thing Paul's prays for is power. I pray that you may know the incomparably great power for us who believe. Then he explains what that power looks like. That power kind of power I want you to experience, is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. So when Paul is praying for you to experience with your heart power, what kind of power? Power that raised a dead man to life. Power that raised that living man to heaven. Power that placed that living man on the throne in the universe. And power that will cause that man to reign over all the powers of earth. That's the power he wants you to experience and not just know about. Resurrection power. That's what makes Christianity different than all the other religions. It's not, a, it's not a cerebral thing we're about here today. It's not academic. And it does involve beliefs, but those beliefs are the umbilical cord that attaches to life. And Paul wants us to understand this unique power that he's out of words. So he just starts using a bunch of words to try to, he's completely unable. Charles Spurgeon said, I used to go home and mourn and grieve over my preaching that I could not convey with my mouth what I knew to be true in my heart. This is what, this is what Paul is experiencing here. He's like, he's like somebody who buys a Hallmark card. <clears throat> and it's beautifully written, but they can't resist. They just have to underline every word again and then double underline 
because they really want you to know how they feel, what's in their heart. This is Paul's hallmark card, double underline. Look how he tries to describe the resurrection power that is available for your life. These are all Greek words or transliterations of them. It's incomparably, it's hyper power, above all power. It's great. It's mega power. It's the power of dynamite, dunamis power. It is a power that is filled with energy. It's the same mighty, unconquerable strength and ability that was exerted when Christ was raised from the dead. And all of that is in your body. Available for your life. But so often we we see that only, we see it with the eyes of our head, and we don't see it with the eyes of our heart. I know, I know today you're here. Praise God you're here. But I know that you are saying, you're saying like I would say, there are many days I don't know this kind of power. Why don't I know that? Why don't I know this power if it's there? How do you experience the power of something? How do you experience the force of a waterfall? By reading about waterfalls, you want to read about all the waterfalls of North Carolina today and see if you get wet? You experience the force of a waterfall when you walk toward it. That's what happens in church every week. You're walking toward resurrection power. That's what happens when you read your Bible tomorrow. You're walking toward the waterfall of resurrection power. You want to see the beauty of the Grand Canyon? It's free. That big ditch is free. Just drive out to Arizona and it's free to see. But you have to drive there to see that which is free. Resurrection power is available, purchased by Christ, but you have to move toward him continually Moving away from sin, moving toward Christ, moving away from, from all the junk and the clutter that we fill our heads with, you got to move away from that and move toward Jesus to experience resurrection power. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything in history. Paul said that in Romans 4, 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins. A lot of people died. A lot of people have died. But he was raised for our justification, which means because the cross completely freed us from all condemnation. You don't have to live in fear because he rose from the dead. You don't ever have to live in fear. Is there going to be anything to surface in my life one day that God's going to say, ah, that's going to exclude you from heaven. He was raised to say, case closed, forgiven, heaven ready. The resurrection of Jesus Christ frees us from everything that has been damning us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ mocks the power of death because it is the beginning of the undoing of death. Because everything that's happened to Jesus Christ after he rose from the dead is going to happen to you after you die. Everything is yours.
because he rose from the dead. And that begins a whole life. He rises from the dead. He sends his spirit into your life. Sometimes his spirit working in your life and tell you, God is your father. Sometimes the spirit is going to work in your life and say, this is dishonoring to God, your father. Sometimes the spirit's going to work in your life and is going to call you to a brand new thing that you didn't see coming. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God is going to tell you your hope is dependent on Christ's victory. Your weakness is swallowed up by his strength, and your emptiness will be replenished by his fullness. All of the work of the Spirit is due because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul is praying, I want you to see the power of the resurrection. I want you to walk toward the waterfall of the power of Christ. The reason why I love these verses, the reason why I love these verses in Ephesians is because how hopeless it would be if I told you this morning how you're living right now is the best there is ever going to be. But these verses give us hope that there is more that I just haven't seen with my, the eyes of my heart. I just, it's there. I'm telling you, read Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, just so you can know for your addictions, for your perversions, for your enslavement, for your despair, there is freedom. And it's there if you just walk toward it. It's there. That's why he wrote these verses. When, when Paul speaks of power, it's, there's, no, there's nothing abstract. He's not speaking in a vacuum. You know, he knows what kind of world you live in. He knows what kind of world the Ephesian church lived in there in that 250,000 pagan idol-loving city filled with demonic powers, filled with those who gave sacrifices to demons. Our culture feels more demon-possessed than ever. So when Paul talks about that Jesus' power is above all rule, authority, he's talking about Satan defeating power that's available for you. You do not have to be owned by that power of evil that's working in your life. This is the same kind of power that he will fully describe in Ephesians chapter 6 and that he describes in Colossians chapter 2. Listen, people. I know what happens when you wake up every morning. You may not be able to interpret it, but when you begin to walk through your day and wonder why am I feeling such a sense of despair, it is because these powers working against you. They hate us, these powers. They hate our faith. They hate our worship. They hate our marriages. They hate our children. And they hate our ministry. And they hate this church. And they hate you. The powers of evil hate you. Yet every day you wake, you are eternally linked with the living, triumphant Christ who is greater than all the powers that are against you. Look at the confidence this gives you when it's your time to suffer. Look at the confidence that it gave to Jesus Christ when they asked him, Are you the Son of God? Matthew 26, 63, the high priest said to him, Tell us. 
He knew the answer was going to cost him his life. Tell us if you were the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus knew that if he laid down his life on the cross, God would raise him from the dead and seat him on a throne that was far above the powers that just killed him. So if Jesus could trust the Father for what's going to take place after his death, you can trust the Father for what's going to take place in every sphere of your life. That you are linked to one who has power that's far above all rule and authority. And this is so certain that Paul speaks about it in the next chapter as if it's already happened. And God raised us up with Christ and we're with him on his throne in heaven. You're there. Praise God, you're just a breath away from the other foot being there. But one foot is already there. You have access to all of this power. Nothing should motivate your praying and motivate your serving and motivate your Bible reading and your church attendance more than the promise that is if you walk toward Christ, you are going to receive a waterfall of resurrection power. It's there for you. This is how powerful the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. Every single person that lost their battle with life last night, every old person whose kidneys shut down and they died, and every little baby that was born premature, too weak to live, every faithful believer last night that was fleeing persecution had their houses burned and their necks slashed, every one of the 200 believers this morning in Sri Lanka when those terrorists came into those three churches and they, those three hotels and killed 200 of them, every one of them are now reigning with this Christ because of the resurrection. When Timothy was pastoring the church in Ephesus and was so intimidated by the culture of the city that we're talking about in this letter and was ready to pack it in, the Apostle Paul, his mentor, thank God for mentors, wrote him these massively encouraging words. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. This is my good news. For which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. There the Apostle Paul in that Mamertine prison in, in Rome, in the lower depths of that prison chained to a Roman centurion, writes four of the letters of the New Testament, including the book of Ephesians and including this letter to Timothy, and said, Timothy, in all of your suffering, remember Jesus Christ. And he says to us today, Brian, Deidre, Hunter, Shag, Dan, Jenny, Laura, Melanie, Phyllis, Amber, Lisa, Donna, Karen, Robert, Jeremiah, Gracie, 
Remember the resurrected Christ. Remember the greatness of the person that you are serving. Remember the greatness of the person that you're suffering for. Remember the person who rules over this city. Remember the greatness of the person who will walk with you every moment of your life and walk with you through death. Remember the greatness of the person who will reward you for every single act of obedience that you ever commit in his name, including out, putting out Easter eggs on wet grass on a cold, windy, rainy Saturday for Christ. Reward. Because of the resurrected Christ, you will receive a reward even for your sitting here today in his honor. When you lose your job, Remember the resurrected Christ. When you receive the diagnosis of cancer, remember the resurrected Christ. When you're rejected by a spouse or a child, remember the resurrected Christ. When the fight against sin is grueling and painful, remember the resurrected Christ. When the call to ministry is overwhelming, remember the resurrected Christ. When obedience costs you everything, remember the resurrected Christ. And when they slander you, imprison you, and even kill you, remember the resurrected Christ. In his name, I pray and preach. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you today that Jesus is alive, the one who created all matter and all time and space the one who came and entered into our space, the one who wrapped himself in a body that he might suffer. He might allow the matter of the human body to become his clothing so that it could be tortured, so that it could be whipped, so that it could absorb all of the band-aids and all of the murders and all of the adulteries, and all of the abortions, and all of the rapes, all of the executions, all of the greed, all of the burst of anger, all slander that's ever been a part of our existence, absorbed into his sinless body, forever dealt with by the power of his blood, forever done away with with the power of his death. Proven by the power of his resurrection. Jesus, we thank you for that morning when the sun dawned and the stone rolled away and the angels sat and you walked out and you breathed on your disciples the Holy Spirit. And you entered into their life. And you produced faith in us. And then you entered into our life. We want to swim in resurrection power. We want to dream daily about the hope of the glory of God wrapping around us like sunshine and summer breezes. And we thank you that you inherited us with all of our clutter, all of our junk, and all of our filth. You inherited us so that we might inherit you. We praise you, O resurrected Jesus, that you're here today 
ready to enter in another life, ready to transform another past and give them a brilliant future. You're ready to make all things new and cleanse all things old. You are ready to introduce the weak to strength. You're ready to introduce the despairing to hope. You are ready to prepare every breathing man and woman and teenager and boy and girl in this building, prepare them for the day they die to be clothed in the glory of God. And we thank you that we can believe that because you are risen from the grave. It's in your name we pray. Amen.